With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For Ellie Webb, this is success. Women tell me they don't, you know, go to a board meeting without a blowout or they, they have an important date or sometimes they're just like want to feel better about themselves. Like to me, I think that's like the greatest part of the business and what we've done. From Business Insider, I'm Rich Filoni. Ali Webb is the co-founder and visionary behind Drybar, the hugely popular blowout salon that took a regional trend mainstream. Her business is built around one thing, blow drying and styling women's hair without cutting or coloring. Drybar has made millions of dollars doing it, and there are more than 100 locations across North America. Webb shares the lesson she's learned from this success in her new podcast, Raising the Bar. Webb started styling here when she was a kid and worked in salons for 20 years before settling down in Los Angeles. She thought she wanted to be a full-time stay-at-home mom, but after a while, she started to get a little stir-crazy. So, she started the small business that turned into Drybar, going home-to-home and delivering affordable, professional-grade blowouts. I basically like threw a blow dryer and all my tools in a duffel bag and like my husband made me this one page website. It was called Straight at Home, which is the name of my little mobile business. And I started posting it all over town and saying like, hey, I'm a stay at home mom. I'm, you know, a longtime hairstylist. I'll come over and blow out your hair while your baby's sleeping and charge like 40 bucks. And the way I came up with that was like 220s seemed really easy for everybody. And so I started this mobile business and it was during that time that I'd say I operated that business for about a year, and I would always ask my clients, you know, when I can't come to your home, what do you do? Because $40, and you may not know this because you're a guy who doesn't get blowouts, I'm assuming, although I appreciate the you're yellow assuming, shirt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> very on brand. Yeah. Um, you know, $40 to go to someone's home is very inexpensive for blowouts. Now it is. Back then it was. That was like, um, you know, 10 years ago. So... What I was learning from operating this business is that I was getting very busy very fast. And you know, I was only charging 40 bucks. I was like running around town like a crazy person, blow drying all my mommy friends. And I realized when I couldn't go to their house and I'd say like, you know, what do you do when I say no, I can't come? And they're like, well, I either like skip it all together, go to like the discount chain down the street where like the experience isn't great. Or they go to their cut and color salon where they're like overpaying for a blowout and they're getting pressured to get cut and color and whatever else happens. So that's when I realized like, wow, like there's no option for women to, you know, at an affordable, like nice place where there's no pressure. It doesn't smell like perm. Like none of that just didn't exist. Like nowhere. That wasn't a thing. You know, if you went to like the Fantastic Sam's or if you're in New York City, like the Jean-Louis David, like there's there's those like in and out places that are cheap and fast. But like the, the experience isn't great. You're sitting next mm-hmm. to a kid getting your hair cut. It's just like, wow. Yeah. So I felt like 
I needed to kind of turn my mobile business into this brick and mortar. Would that have been a, a crazy idea at the time, like a, a like a salon just for getting blow ups? Uh, uh, totally, because this was in 2008 and it didn't exist. Now they're popping up everywhere. We have 100 locations. Like it's the the category has like grown tremendously. Which you know we basically created a category on accident. I didn't mean to do that. I just really wanted a place like I had dreamt of as a kid, a place where you know women could go for a blowout. And it was a very like simple, not thought out idea. So yeah, it's something that totally didn't exist back then. Had you ever done anything entrepreneurial before that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my brother, Michael Landau, who's my business partner, mm-hmm. we've always been super close. He's three years older than me, I should mention. And before I actually went took the plunge and went to beauty school and I was still in like trying to figure out my life mode. I lived in New York City and I was working in fashion. We were both working for Nicole Miller, who was a big designer you know, this was like 20 years ago. And we decided to move back to South Florida where we grew up and open Nicole Miller Boutiques. And that I was like mm, 21, 22 at that point. My brother was like 25 or whatever. And it was like, so not the right thing. And I, even though my, my parents had clothing stores, so it, that also seemed like the natural thing for us. But I, I mean, we almost killed each other. We were fighting like cats and dogs. We were both so young and inexperienced and stupid. And like, well, why were you fighting so much? You know, I, I think, I think we were just so young and inexperienced. We were in the wrong thing. And so we were kind of driving each other crazy because I think there was all this underlining tension of like, we're both not happy in our lives, which, you know, is one of our biggest mantras at Dry Bar. It's like, life is too short to work someplace lame. And it's like, you know, I mean, I kind of joke that Michael was like always playing golf and I was running the store. So I was probably a little bitter about that. (laughs) He might differ. But, you know, I mean, honestly, like I was like the manager of the stores. I was running the stores. It was like a women's focused kind of business. And I think he felt a little uncomfortable in the stores, too. And he, you know, he did all the buying in the back end and which is similar to how our partnership is now in Drybar. But it just wasn't a good fit for either one of us. I think it's interesting if you had before Drybar, this one entrepreneurial experience, and it was with your brother, and it went terribly. Why did you do it again? Well, my parents asked the same question. When we told them we were going back into business together, you know, there had been a lot of time, obviously, between that. We'd both grown a lot. I, you know, I had gotten married, I had kids, and Michael was also, by the way, such a big um, supporter of me going to beauty school when I decided to leave Nicole Miller and do that, which, by the way, my parents were not. My parents were like, what? Like, you want to go to cosmetology school? Like, they saw how terrible things got in the Nicole Miller days. So that was the big question. And there was a lot of, like, you know, really, like, intense conversations about it. And, you know, I remember saying to my brother, like, it can't be like it was. And he knew that and felt that, too. And I think once we had those conversations about you know, this being very different and like it couldn't be like it was. And we, you know, and a lot of like the things that we did to push each other's buttons, like we kind of vowed to not do again. And you give me an example of like maybe one of those conversations where you were, as you were saying, uh, figuring out how to not push each other's buttons, because I feel like that could apply to any co-founders yeah. working together. Well, I think it's I think everyone probably has different buttons. Um, and I think it's like learning how to talk to each other in a respectful manner. I think more than anything, though, it's, it is the sense of respect that we have for each other. I mean, you can just feel that when somebody respects you, when somebody doesn't. And when someone like really wants to hear your opinion and wants your thoughts versus somebody who's just like kind of dialing it in and you feel like it's not like genuine, like they're feeling like they're asking you because they have to ask you versus wanting to to really genuinely have your opinion and and there's so much back and forth 
it's such a two way street with Michael and I on that because I know he really values my opinion and he knows I really value his opinion. And I think that's why the partnership works. And it also goes to Cam, my husband, you know, it's like we defer to everything creatively on to him and have such massive respect for what he does and, and vice versa. He's not trying to get into the business side of stuff and neither one of them are trying to like get in and control the, the hair piece of the business. And I think the the beauty of it and the part that's like the most personally satisfying to me is that here my brother had always been kind of the overachiever of the family. Like, you know, he always like landed on his feet and it was always going to do be successful. I was a little like the late bloomer, as my parents called me, and like what the hell is Allie going to do with her life? So to be able to like, you know, find this kind of success that we found together is obviously very rewarding for me. And the fact that I had the expertise in this business that I was going to, you know, do with my brother, you know, gave me that kind of not leg up, but I'd say like level of respect from my brother because he knew that I knew this business, the hair salon business, like the back of my hand, and he knew nothing about it. Him and Cameron are both bald, like no business. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say <laughs> that like uh, two of your co-founders, bald oh, men. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it would be better if they had like 80s Iron Maiden hair, but well, my husband's always really envious of guys with like you know really good like hair because he doesn't have any, and neither does my brother. And I mean, my brother took like some time to come to terms with like losing his hair, but then they started shaving it. It looks cool, and it's like a big guy (laughs) trend, so it's all good. Did that ever become a problem if they can't experience the product that they're helping build? It's well, that's funny that you say that because they it is. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever personally walked into a dry bar, but it's definitely like it feels like a little bit like of a woman's like boudoir. Like you don't really like guys, I think, feel uncomfortable if they're in there for too long because it's like a bunch of women getting their hair done. And I think that's kind of how my brother and husband feel. Cameron has had to be in the shop a lot more because we we shoot a lot of videos. And Even stuff. though they help design it. Yeah, because they're just like, it's like, you know, it's like crawling with women. And I think they feel really uncomfortable. I mean, most guys that I talk to tell me that. Not all, but a lot of guys feel that way. So, yeah, no, they really can't experience the product. But they watch it. And, you know, if you sat in dry bar for long enough, you would see over and over and over and over again the way a woman comes in with her hair like in a bun and her hat and she's very serious and like focused and then the way she is when she's walking out like there's this pep in her step and this confidence and she's like looking at every mirror you know and then and you watch that and you see that and you're like wow like we really captured something here you know and they can feel that too were you ever afraid or are you ever afraid of when you're Working with family, especially your husband and your brother, if there's a business disagreement that that could like seep into your personal life. Oh yes, that has happened. Um, it is. I think when you run and own and operate your own business, it's really hard to draw that line between personal and business. And you know, and we're always all talking about the business. Like it's just such so like you know the fabric of our lives, really. And so, and there's definitely been fights and disagreements. But I, you know, I think that we all. Again, it go, I think it goes back to that level of respect we have for each other, you know, that we trust and that there's like an innate trust that's there. And I think you don't always have to be just with your family and a partnership just with your family to have that. But having somebody that you really trust that feels like family is, is crucial. Is there a moment that you could point to either in the early days or 
even as it was scaling, where one of those were it was maybe threatening yeah. uh, a personal relationship, but you figured it out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the very early days, I was kind of the conduit between Cameron and Michael, and I would be like sending Cameron, or I would send Michael something that Cameron had designed and been like, hey, what do you think of this? And then Michael would be like, well, I don't really like blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> and then I'd say, well, Michael doesn't like this. And then Cameron would be like, what the fuck? Like, why doesn't he like that? That's so stupid. And, and I would be like, I don't know. I'm just like the in-between here. And it was a bad place to be. And and finally, I mean, it, it, it sounds so simple in retrospect, but finally I was like, you guys just talk to each other. I don't want to be in the middle of this anymore. Like, you know, and then once they did that and they were they were already like he's my brother-in-law, like they were already like, you know, they were already like family and friends but it kind of forced them to like stop using me as this like go between of like these this back and forth because that's never a good idea for them to talk directly there was like a much greater level I mean they're not technically related so there was like a little more respect I guess between them versus just saying whatever they wanted to me because I was like the sister and the and the wife so that was a lesson we learned really early and then it, what happened it, you know it was kind of magical because Cameron's such a great designer and marketer and and my bro- my brother is such an amazing marketer so when the two of them would get together and talk about things like it would get even better so it was like a blessing you know to get them to actually talk to one another versus talking through me which was not a good idea I think that's why the partnership Staying works so in well lanes. yeah I mean having having strengths and in knowing your strengths and your weaknesses and what you're good at and what you're not I think is incredibly important for any business no matter what it is you know just how drybar is built on this premise of doing one thing and doing it really well it's like I think that I think I have a lot of different skill sets but I think you know my main kind of skill and best and highest use with this brand is like making sure the hair looks and feels a certain way the training of the hair the customer service like how the shops run like that's all my stuff and that's the stuff I know and understand you know Michael is dealing with like finding leases and negotiating terms and all the shit I hate you know and Cameron I didn't really understand branding until you know we started building dry bar and, and Cameron was so adamant about like everything being yellow like I always tell the story like our first Valentine's Day the shop was open I wanted to bring in pink flowers because it's Valentine's Day and Valentine's I'd say it's pink and red and he was like no the flowers have to be yellow it's, it'd go against branding yeah you can't like you, <laughs> everything has to be yellow and gray and white and so I slowly but surely like really learned that from him and I learned so much from my brother about figuring out spaces and learning how to raise money and all those things so we've all taught each other so much about each other's areas but there is still that level of respect of like this is what you do this is what I do and so we divide and conquer and then at what point did you realize that you didn't want to just have one location that could like serve your community but this could actually be something that you could turn into a business that just yeah, scale. it was such a roll of the dice. And it was in 2010 that we opened the first door, which was in the middle of a recession. And I mean, everybody thought we were crazy. And we, I remember we were opening in this space in Brentwood Gardens, which we're still in today. And the shopping center was dead. And I remember my brother and I going there during construction. There was like nobody in the center. And my brother was like, um... Like, how is this going to work? There's nobody here. Like, who's going to come? You know, and I was like, no, I think it's going to work. And I had had like the support of like from the women from my mobile blow dry business who, you know, I felt like we're going to come and, I, you know, we would figure that out. You know, I mean, that was kind of what I was hoping. But it was scary. And and I had people telling me that like every business that had been in the location we were opening in had had failed and closed, which obviously since it was available. So it was a little scary in the beginning. And so that really just made us 
feel like we had to really like bring the marketing and figure out how to like get the word out and make sure that people knew about this and hope they, you know, the, the goal of the business then, which is still the goal of the business today, is doing enough women volume, you know, having enough women come in. And back then, we thought it was only going to be like 30 to 40 blowouts a day, which would be an awful day now. I mean, we do more like 100 women, give or take a day. But, you know, we very quickly realized once we opened Brentwood and it was so mobbed from the get-go, it was like being the cool club that nobody can get into, which isn't great for a business. You know, it's like we we wanted to get as many women in as we could because we wanted to do but the business. But at least there was hype. There was so much hype and there was so much demand. And so I remember women coming in since we were in Brentwood. Women would come in from like Beverly Hills and they, you know, the Brentwood women would be like, why are these Beverly Hills women there? Get them their own shop. And, you know, I remember calling my brother who was at the time, these very in the very early days, still running his business. And I was like, Mike, you've got to find us more locations. Like I couldn't even like, I couldn't even come up for air. I was like literally in the store for like the first six months months, seven days a week. Like I didn't leave. Like I wasn't, could not do anything else but focus on like getting more stylists because we didn't have enough stylists because we totally underestimated the demand and making sure like the blowouts were good. The customer service is good. I was doing blowouts all day long. Like it was crazy. So I had, and I still had two little kids at home and a husband and all that. So it was so, so nuts in the beginning. And I was like, Mike, you have to find us more locations. Like, we cannot meet the demand. And in the early days, we also used to have, like, walk-ins or pop-ins welcome, like, on our the front window. And we were like, um, we got to take that down no because more, yeah. women would come in and they're like, well, you said you can just pop in. And we're like, yeah, we were wrong about that because everybody was booking versus – the, the, the walk-in nature of the business that we thought it might be, which turned out not to be. So it was a lot of learnings in those early days. And, and yeah, we opened that second location within six months of Brentwood in Studio City. And now we have 100. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I don't know how we got there, but yeah. it was, it's been a lot. <laughs> and just even you speaking personally, aside from your co-founders. So, I mean, this started, like the seed of this idea started because- I have curly hair. Yeah, (laughs) because you had curly hair and because you just, there was something that you felt was like missing that you needed to create something. At what point did it become your desire become something different, something bigger? Well, I feel like once we opened that first shop and I saw- you know, the response that we were getting from women, from the press, from everywhere, I was like, wow, you know, we are really onto something. And it was really invigorating. And I felt very empowered. And I felt like, wow, like, I have to bring this to women everywhere. Like, we have to figure this out and keep going. And, and it was like a total life change. And I was, you know, traveling all the time. I went to like the first 50 store openings. And, you know, and, and the fact, I think one of one of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that we have created all these jobs. And also, also this like kind of bridge this gap between you know when you come out of beauty school the path the typical path is like to work in a hair salon and be someone's assistant for a year or two while you're learning you know and honing your skills you're getting kind of fed clients you know dry bar has bridged that gap where we can't always take everybody right out of beauty school but it's definitely like you know a middle kind of road for for stylists to go and be able to have this job at Drybar, which becomes a lead generator for them working at their cut and color salons um, and gets them like comfortable without like doing anything permanent to a client. You know, they're not cutting, they're not coloring. So it's this great like way for them to kind of get more and more comfortable with the business. And they're doing blowouts anyways, assisting for somebody. So, I mean, there's so many things that I'm proud of, but that's something that I feel like, you know, I wished 
dry bar had existed when I came out of beauty school. It, it has served, you know, so many, I think, hairstylists who who will then go on, you know, to work at a full service salon and then sometimes just come back to dry bar when they're slow and pick up some shifts, you know. So it's a really like fluid system. And it's so it's it's good. And when you were starting off, you were lucky enough to have a resource with Michael where he was able to have 250 grand for the seed yeah. money for it. Do you think that if uh, you didn't have that resource that you would have found a way to get this going? 100%. I mean, I think that, that I, you know, I was certainly lucky that I had him there. But there's so many ways to raise money, which I now on the other side know and understand that whether it's, you know, friends and family, um, you know, getting a, a a small business loan, you know, it's like you, you have to tap all your resources and like even places that you don't think might, you know, you never know who would be willing to invest in you or who knows somebody who would be willing to invest in you or partner with you or, you know, you have to like ask a lot of people and really, I tell people that all the time, like, you know, you probably within your personal friend network, like there's a lawyer who can help you with like all the legal stuff like there and, you know, for like a small percentage of the company or whatever it is, like there's a lot of ways you can get really creative with raising money, finding partners to like get to that, that that next level. There's some entrepreneurs that I've talked to where they said that in their early days, they were driven by a kind of desperation, that they were like flat broke or just had nothing. This was their only shot. Yeah. If Drybar had flopped, mm-hmm. would you have still just had like a something to fall back on? Yeah. And I think that I always felt like if Drybar didn't work, like, you know, we were all like pretty smart, capable people. We would either find a job or, yeah, I'd just find something else to do. I mean, I had I have this tangible skill. I mean, I know how to do hair. I could I could always go work at a salon. That was always something I could do. That was definitely a fallback, even though that's not what I wanted to do. And I tell, you know, people who want to start their own business that, too, like even if, it, God forbid, it doesn't work. You can go get a job if you have to. You know, you're a really smart, capable person. This is not like the, you're not going to die. This is not the end of the road. This is just, you know, a bump in the road. And you, you know, you get up and you figure it out. And just, maybe this isn't the right thing, you know. But I, I always felt like I and I get I get asked that question a lot. But I always felt like we were all going to survive if this didn't work. We were going to lose some money, which would really suck. But we would pick up our, you know, pick up ourselves up and, and figure out what what was next. So what was driving you if there wasn't like this desperation? Well, I think it was it was passion for this thing that I felt didn't exist that I I kind of inadvertently stumbled upon too even though it you know we didn't invent blowouts blowouts have been around forever but you know to discover this like opportunity and this huge hole in the market I think that was like very exciting to discover something new and exciting, which that's kind of what gets me excited is like, you know, being able to, you know, build something from the ground up or or take something that exists and make it really great. And that's really what we did with Drybar. You know, it was like we I just wanted, you know, women to be able to go someplace and have great hair at a, in a cool space that wasn't that expensive. So as this concept was scaling, at some point you bring in an outside CEO mm-hmm. to start running it. How did that feel? That was not an easy thing. Um, and I think every along every step of, of our growth, that you need to know when you need help and the 
and understanding things that you've never done. And not only that, things that like you don't necessarily want to do. Like for me, you know, again, the marketing and the hair and the customer service, that stuff was like what I wanted to focus on and not like payroll. I wasn't, nobody wants me to focus on payroll. You know, it's like I recognize that we all did recognize the things that we were good at and what we weren't. So, you know, we little by little started to bring in like more professionals to help us grow the business. And our business was growing so incredibly fast. And so it wasn't until we raised some real money with Castaneda that was, again, around 10 or 11 stores that um, we they kind of were urging us. Castaneda was urging us to bring in a professional CEO. And I was like, what? We don't need a professional CEO. We're doing a great job. Like, we, why would we want to, like, change it? Nothing's broken. Like, the business is going is on fire. Let's let's not do that. And I was very, like, bratty about that. And, and my brother was the CEO at the time. And so I also felt like, you know, Michael's doing such a great job. You know, we have this great partnership. And I felt like if we brought somebody else in from the outside, it was gonna like change the culture. And I was like, very against it. And my brother was less, he was less skeptical about the idea. You know, I think he recognized the fact that like, you know, he'd never been a CEO before, like he'd taken the company pretty far, but it may be time for somebody who actually had experience with this, like, you know, this level of management that it it required. So we'd met with a bunch of different potential CEOs and and some were, a lot of them were amazing. They had huge salaries. And I was like, how much do we have to pay these people? I mean, I was just like, this whole idea. I was like, this, I do not like this. But it wasn't until we met John Hefner, who's our CEO now, and he had come from OPI, and he'd been in the beauty world forever. And it, it's funny, and I always tell this story because he's this, like, 6'2", Cor- as corporate looking as you come and I remember like seeing him from across the room and I was like no like no way like I we need we need like someone cool yeah, like this guy isn't cool this, this is like corporate I mean America, I, yeah. I like shame on me I judged him so much based on the way he looked but after we spoke to him for like 20 minutes I was like oh my god I love this guy and he really he'd work he'd worked in other founder-led organizations so he really understood the dynamic of working with a founder and that he couldn't just come in and like overhaul everything and, and change everything. And he, that's not what he, I remember him making this analogy of like me, Michael and him being like a, like a three legged stool. And without the three of us, like it, everything falls apart. And I was like, that's, that's a good one, you know, because <laughs> I felt like that was what we needed was someone who's going to come in and partner with us versus someone who's going to come in and like this ivory tower and change everything. Cause I don't, I didn't feel like anything needed to be changed. I think that we needed management and I think that we needed like, you know, systems and things that Michael and I weren't necessarily good at, but we didn't want anybody to change the culture and to change like, you know, the core of what the business was, which John, you know, didn't want to do and, and didn't do and hasn't done. He he has brought in a level of management that, you know, we just didn't have. And through this all, what do you think the biggest challenge that you've overcome has been? I think for me personally, it is that letting go of a lot of you know, the decision making and, and going from making every single decision to giving up a lot of that. And you were even personally training yeah, uh, yeah. for the technique, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I personally trained a lot and then I trained other people how to train and that, you know, has grown and grown and grown. So basically you've learned how to let go of certain things and, and just focus on what you can specifically do. Yeah, totally. I think that, you know, I still, 
I feel like I have a little bit more of like a bird's eye view of the business versus being in the weeds like I used to be where I'm, you know, I still weigh in on a lot of things, but I don't I don't ultimately make the decision on everything anymore the way I used to. There are some like hard and fast things that are like just me. But but, you know, there are there are a lot of other really smart people in our organization now who, you know, we've empowered to make a lot of decisions. You just the business couldn't be what it is without that. You know, I mean, a lot of I feel like there was years ago, you know, I would be a bottleneck. You know, it's like we were progressing so slow because everybody was waiting for me to sign off on something or Michael to sign off on something or camera. And, you know, it's like we've had to, like, get past that a little bit. And, and you know, if I'm being totally honest, there's times that, like, I don't agree with all the decisions that are made and that is a really hard pill to swallow but you know it's like we have to keep going and Mm -hmm. we have to learn from our mistakes and we have to look back and say you know what we should have done this differently but here we are you know and I think that's all like a part of the learning and growing process yeah and at this point how do you personally define success Hmm. that is a good question well I feel like you know, I'm I'm so grateful and proud for what we have built. So I think the fact that we've, you know, we've brought dry bar to so many women and that like, you know, kind of, I mean, I know it sounds hokey and probably maybe a little silly, but like the fact that we kind of enhance women's lives. I mean, women tell me they don't, you know, go to a board meeting without a blowout or they, if they have an important date or sometimes they're just like want to feel better about themselves. Like just the fact that we've built this amazing business that so many women love is like, amazing so it's seeing that tangible yeah, impact. yeah it's seeing how yeah that we impact women we you know provide jobs like which you know c- continues to grow and grow and grow you know the fact that of our 102 stores that we're at now like almost all of those stores are run by managers who were once stylists you know so we really try to like grow these stylists who show you know management skills that are just like the hard workers we we keep promoting and promoting and growing and you know sometimes it's harder than others but I, we feel really strongly about like hiring from within and like promoting those people which i also think makes people want to come and work for our company because they know there's a path to growth and they there's there's so much opportunity and there is so much opportunity at our company so i think that's something else that i'm like makes me feel really good Is there a a single piece of advice or maybe the best piece of advice that you would want to give someone who wants to have a career like yours? I think it's a couple things. I think it's, you know, starting with something that's like an extreme passion. Obviously, I know this firsthand. If you're building a business, it, it takes so much time, effort, money blood, sweat, and tears, like all of it. And and you can't even understand that until you're like in the trenches of it. So if you're not so over the top passionate about it like it will never work and then I would say like being really open to feedback and 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 being receptive and like, making sure the people around you know that you're receptive I mean the the thing I hate the most is like yes people I like the last thing and I feel like probably every founder and leader feels this way like you don't ever want people around you who are just telling you what they think you want to hear it's like nothing drives me more crazy like I want you to tell me the truth I want to know and I don't want to be shielded from things either I want to hear if something's going on in one of our stores like I it kind of like makes my team a little crazy when like clients directly email me something that happened because they're like why are they emailing the founder of the company I'm like why wouldn't they email the founder of the company like I want to know everything I want to know the truth I want to know things that are going on in my company and and so, you know, if you surround yourself with people who are like going to give it to you straight, I think you're going to be mo- so much more successful so that you really know what's going on. And I think a lot of people find themselves like, you know, 
in, in an environment that's not like that, you know, or them themselves are not, you know, open to feedback and you don't really want to hear the bad stuff. Like you got to hear the bad stuff, you know, in order to, to be great. Well, thank you so much, Ali. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Thanks for listening to This is Success from Business Insider. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to our other podcast, Household Name, to hear the surprising stories behind big brand names. This is Success is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Next week, we're going to revisit some of our favorite answers to the question at the heart of our series. How do you personally define success? It's impact. Hitting goals that I set for myself. Mattering. To hear that episode and more, make sure you subscribe to our show. And while you're at it, give us a rating and leave a review, letting us know what you think. This is Success is a production of Insider Audio.